Good evening, church. Nice to be here. My name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors. And tonight I'm team preaching with the amazing Betsy Rogers. That's a great joy for me. I want to begin tonight with a, a story. It's a true story. In the late 1800s in North India, uh, if you were a Christian in those days, you would be persecuted, you would be spat on, you'd be beaten, you'd be mocked, you'd be tortured. Here's how the story goes. In a small province um, called Assam, there's a, a man and his wife and these two kids, and they, they hear the gospel. Missionaries come and they preach the gospel and they believe in Jesus. whole family are baptized as followers of Jesus Christ. And that's when the persecution starts. They're tortured, spat on, beaten, and mocked for their faith. And the chief leader of the tribe comes to the, the husband and says, Stop following Jesus. If you don't stop following Jesus, we will kill your wife. And the man says these now infamous words, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. In his anger, the man says, stop following Jesus. If you do not stop following Jesus, we will kill your two, your two children. And the man says, the world behind me and the cross before me. No turning back. The man is so angry, he says, if you do not stop following Jesus Christ, we'll kill you. And the man says, though none go with me, Still, I will follow, no turning back. Now, those words were put to a hymn, a now famous hymn that goes, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And when you know the story behind the hymn, it's much more powerful because following Jesus is not a walk in the park. Following Jesus is demanding and my question for you tonight is, have you decided to follow Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? I'm not asking if you think Jesus existed. I'm not asking if you like church or if you read your Bible or even if you pray. I'm not even asking if you believe in Jesus. I'm asking, are you a follower? Are you someone whose life is shaped by Jesus? Are you, are you somebody who are pursuing a, a gentle, humble, Christ-like life where everything you think and everything you feel and everything you do is shaped by your relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you a follower of Jesus? I love this quote. It's on the screen. It says, Jesus was never interested in having fans he wanted followers. Uh, the quote goes on, when Jesus defines what kind of relationship he wants, enthusiastic admirer is not an option. My concern is that many of our churches in America, same here in Australia, many of our churches here have gone, have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week all the fans come to the stadium. And every week all the fans cheer for Jesus but they have no interest in truly following him. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians, but are not actually interested in following Christ. They just want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, 
but not so close that it requires anything from them. I find that quote really challenging because it's so easy to claim to be a Christian, but you just want all the benefits. You like church, you like community, you like morality, as long as Jesus doesn't make any demands of you. But when you follow Jesus, that means giving your life and giving you all to him. Three ways to follow Jesus. I'll I'll speak to the first and then Betsy to the second second and third. So following Jesus means, means confessing him. Following Jesus means that you are declaring with your lips who he is. You, you believe he is the Christ. You understand who he is, his identity, not just a man, but fully God. Uh, Jesus asked Peter the most important question in the world. It's there in verse 15. He says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? That, that really is the life-changing question. That really is the most profound, personal question that you've got to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? I love the story of the, the hospital waiting room. And these people have been waiting for hours to see a doctor, as you often do. And there's this, this self-important, arrogant, proud man who gets fed up of waiting and he storms up to the receptionist and he bangs his fist and says, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? And the woman on the reception, she very calmly just presses the intercom button so the, the whole waiter can hear and says, excuse me, I, I've got a gentleman here who doesn't seem to know who he is. Can anyone help me? You see, if you wander around and say to people, do you know who I am? It comes across as proud and arrogant and self-important or or a bit crazy. But when Jesus stares you in the face and says, do you know who I am? That is not a moment of pride. He's asking the identity question. Have Have you grasped, have you understood exactly who he is? Please don't come up with a patronizing nonsense of him being a good man or a good teacher. That question, who is Jesus, is the, the question of Matthew's gospel. The, the religious people, when they saw the paralytic healed, said, who is this man who forgives sins? The disciples, as they witnessed the, the calm of the storm, said, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this man? That's our question. And your answer to that question will have eternal consequences. So verse 13 of chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, so we're in pagan political country. This is pagan nations, pagan lands. And Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So what's the word on the street about me? And they said, oh, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. They say, the crowd think, Jesus, that you're, you're someone special. They think you're kind of prophet, a prophet, a messenger from God. They have this, this elevated view of Jesus, but it's quite patronizing. Like most people in the world today, they, they say, oh, yeah, Jesus, I, I like Jesus. He's a good man. He's a cool dude, good teacher, great moral teaching. 
But then it gets personal in verse 15 because Jesus is personal. He says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And this is Peter's moment. This is Peter's defining monumental moment because, because Peter often gets it wrong, doesn't he? But on this occasion, he got it, he got it exactly right. Verse 16, Simon Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, underline that verse, highlight that verse. That is the the perfect answer. That is your confession. You, Jesus, are the Messiah. You, Jesus, are God's king, God's anointed one. You, Jesus, are the one who's going to reign on the throne for all eternity. And you, Jesus, are the the son of the living God. So you, Jesus, are, are God incarnate. You're God before me. You're not dead. You're alive because you're, you're walking before me. That is you, Jesus. That's who I believe you are. It's the most extraordinary answer. It's the right answer. Now, at this stage, Peter's got the right answer, but the wrong understanding. But don't be too harsh on him. He hasn't got 2,000 years of church history. I'll ask you again, who do you say Jesus is? That is the most important question you'll ever have to answer. More important than which suburb to live in or what car to buy or who to date or who to marry or when to retire. Who do you say Jesus is? It's a life-changing question. It was May 1990 when they had that light bulb moment for me personally. I spent two and a half years investigating world religions, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, I got reams of notes on who Jesus was or who he claimed to be. But I could have folders full of information. But that light bulb moment was that question, who do you say Jesus is? It's a really simple question. Is he God or is he not God? Did he live or did he not live? Did he die or did he not die? Is he the Messiah? It's a simple yes, no question. C.S. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the kind of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But please, let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that option open to us because he did not intend to. Who do you say Jesus is? You've got to be able to say Jesus is, is the Messiah, the Christ, the King in every season of your life. Not, not just here in church, but when you walk out of this room, in your home, in the hospital bed, in the funeral home, at every stage of life, Jesus is still your King, your Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, if you're here tonight and you're confessing with your lips that Jesus is the Messiah, please don't think that you are special. Please don't think that you are somehow superior and smug because look at me, I'm declaring that Jesus is my Messiah. It's not about you, it's all about God. Verse 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, 
for this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood. It's not about your human understanding, but my Father in heaven. He's saying, Peter, the only reason you can say that is because God has opened your eyes. God revealed it to you. It wasn't your intelligence. We kind of have to rewrite that song, not I have decided to follow Jesus, but God revealed to me that Jesus is the Messiah, so I decided to follow him. It doesn't quite have the same tone, does it? It's a foundational truth, though, verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. This is the most misunderstood verse of the whole of Scripture. The church is not built on Peter. The church is built on Jesus Christ. And Peter was not the first bishop. And every other bishop or pope comes from the line of Peter. That, that's just crazy nonsense. Jesus says, on this rock. What is the rock? The rock is this confession. The rock is this, this solid truth that Jesus is the Messiah. On the rock that Jesus is the Messiah, I will build my church. Because a church built on any other foundations than Jesus being the Messiah is no church. Church is not about lighting and applause and adoration. And church is not about candles and clergy and personal confessions with a priest. Church is about honoring, adoring, and worshiping Jesus as your Messiah and your King and the Son of the living God. And any church that doesn't have Jesus in it is not actually a true church. And Jesus says, verse 13, that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So this confession that Jesus is the Messiah is most powerful, is, is more powerful than spiritual darkness or death, and nothing can stop the work of Jesus building his church. And we've got a part to play, verse 19. And Jesus said, I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And what he's saying there is that we have a part to play. As, as we proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, as we go about our everyday life, declare with our lips and our lives that Jesus is the Messiah, then we're involved in setting people free. Those people who accept that Jesus is the Messiah have been set free. They've been loosed on earth and they've been loosed in heaven. We get to see people set free from sin and Satan and suffering and disease and death and we have a part to play in that. As we declare with our lips and we say with our lives that Jesus is the Messiah, it's the most important confession, life-changing confession. So I'll ask you again, have you decided to follow Jesus? Have you confessed with your lips who Jesus really is? So May 1990, I made my confession. But to be honest, I didn't really understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. I'll hand over to Betsy. just saw Peter and the disciples, they've been following Jesus. They've made this confession. They actually believe he is who he says he is. They believe he is the Messiah, and they believe that he is the Christ. They've seen him perform miracles. They are persuaded that he is that Messiah, the King, the Christ. But they have a misunderstanding of what that means, because to them, they imagined a ruling, reigning king. 
They imagined that Jesus was going to come and he would bring a holy victory through a holy battle to build a holy city and a holy kingdom, and they were ready to fight that battle and to reign with him. But we see in verse 21 that Jesus starts to talk about his death and his resurrection and suffering. And this suffering servant that he speaks of is very different than the reigning king that they're expecting. And it's so different that we see that Peter even kind of pulls Jesus aside and he's like, no, 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 Peter, or no, 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 Jesus, this is never going to be you. This is not how it's going to happen. This is not the plan. And Jesus has some really harsh words for Peter. You see, he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Imagine being Peter. I have so much sympathy for Peter in this moment because we just read that Jesus had said to Peter, you're blessed and I'm going to build my church on your confession. And now he's calling him Satan. It must have been a very jarring moment for Peter. But the point is not that Jesus, Peter is calling Jesus Satan. The point is that Jesus is revealing that the mind that Peter has still is one of the world, that he's understanding things not through the lens of what God would have him to understand, but through the lens of the world. He's confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't understand what it means that for Jesus to be the Messiah. So as Jesus continues speaking with Peter, he paints this picture for his followers of one of, through the lens of suffering. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, the disciples would have had an understanding of what it meant to be a disciple. I mean, sorry, of what the, it meant to be be a to experience a crucifixion. They would have understood what carrying your cross meant. But you see, the crucifixion was an incredibly humiliating, painful way for someone to die, and it was used for criminals. And part of the crucifixion process was that you were required to carry the instrument of your torture, that you were required to carry the instrument of your death. They would have had no understanding that that's what they were going to do. But I want us to recognize that Jesus doesn't simply say, deny yourself, take up your cross, and go and die. Or deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow the law. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He's implying that he will be the one to pick up his cross first. That this is the message of a suffering servant that is so new to the disciples they're struggling to understand. And while there is a dramatic element to this concept of taking up our cross, I want us to see tonight that more than this one-time sacrifice on the cross, that Jesus points to a daily, small obedience as we sacrifice in self-denial each and every day. Because the same passage is mirrored in Luke. And in Luke, he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. So not only does following Jesus mean affirming that he is the Messiah and confessing he is who he says he is, following Jesus means daily walking with him and following him where he leads. You know that feeling when you're going somewhere 
and you don't know where you're going, and the friend leaves before you and says, oh, just follow me. I'll drive first, and you know, I know where I'm going, so you just follow me. And when you're following someone in their car, it can be a little anxiety-inducing because, one, you have to actually trust that they know where they're going. <laughs> and um, you have to put a lot of faith that they're in that, and you have to be like, okay, well, I'll slow down when they slow down. I'll stop when they slow. They'll stop. I'll turn left when they turn left. You have to, you may not know where you're going as you drive and like, this place doesn't look familiar. Okay, I'm just going to trust they know where they're going. But you also have to trust that they're not going to lose you. But if they're leading and sending you in a certain direction, that you're going to be able to follow, that you are going to be able to follow them and they're not going to lose you. All you have to do is trust them and follow where they're going. And friends, that's what Jesus is asking of us, to follow behind him as he leads the way and to trust that he is taking us in the right direction as we go where he leads. It's walking with him and allowing him to take control. And it's saying to Jesus, if you turn left, I'll turn left. If you stop, I'll stop. It's daily faithfulness. It's the small, boring, seemingly unimportant decisions that we make every day that end us up in a certain place. Following Jesus is a step-by-step practice of dying to self and picking up your cross daily and choosing the way of Jesus, one foot in front of the other. Eugene Peterson calls it a long obedience in the same direction. The daily decisions that you make are the ones that actually change the direction you head. Following Jesus means that you are submitting your wants and desires each day while having a rhythm of sacrifice and surrender and obedience while trusting that Jesus is guiding your steps. It's not a siloed faith where he gets part of your week or areas of your life. This is a daily surrender where everything you do, everything you are, every step you take is taking up your cross and following. And this will actually impact your work. It will impact your life decisions. It will impact your relationships. It impacts everything. And the truth is, one of the lies that I believed growing up was that if I made that decision, that if I let go of control, and if I chose to follow Jesus, to deny myself, then any good thing I wanted would be something he wouldn't want for me. And then if I took up my cross and I followed him, it would be a life that was boring and painful and filled with suffering. But the reality is, when we daily, step by step, follow Jesus, in God's kingdom, that is when we actually find our life. Yes, sometimes when we follow Jesus, he leads us into suffering. And when he does, we can know that he has gone before us and that he personally knows the way of suffering because of the cross. But, oh, church, sometimes he leads us beside still waters. Sometimes he leads us to green pastures. And everywhere he leads, he goes before us and he is with us. Because when we follow Jesus, we get Jesus. 
whether we suffer or whether we have green pastures, we get Jesus. He is the one who goes before us, and he never leaves. He is with us no matter where he takes us. In verse 5, Jesus affirms that where he leads is also going to be different than where the world will lead. Verse 5 says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for or 25 will leave me. Sorry. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The paradox of the kingdom of God is that when we give up our rights to lead and control, that is when we actually experience life. That is when we find freedom, joy, and contentment. It's counterintuitive, but the truth of the gospel says that when we seek power and glory and success and money, we will find nothing and our souls will be empty. But when we seek Jesus, Even in the midst of suffering and sacrifice, we will have the peace that passes all understanding and experience life to the full. A song that's been in my head all week while preparing this sermon has been When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, particularly the final verse and particularly the final line. Because that line says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Daily walking with Jesus will demand our lives. But my following of Jesus is not motivated by moral behavior or by doing a set of rules or by fear of judgment. My motivation to pick up my cross every day is because Jesus picked up his first. The only response I can have to that kind of love is to give my entire soul, my life, and my all to follow him. This is the upside-down reality of God's kingdom, the paradox. We lose our lives to find eternal life. Verse 27 tells us that the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. When we pursue all the world has to offer, we will ultimately end up with nothing. But when we follow Jesus... At the end of our days, at the judgment seat of Christ, we will gain the rewards of glory. At the end of the day, we will get Jesus. It's not a 7 p.m. sermon without a Charles Spurgeon quote. And he says, there will be no crown bearers in heaven who are not cross bearers on earth. So we've seen that a person or someone who follows Jesus will confess Jesus. Following Jesus means that we are walking daily with him and following where he leads. And chapter 17 reveals to us that following Jesus also means encountering Jesus. At the end of this discourse, Jesus gives a teaser to those disciples standing there. And he says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And it's a confusing statement. They don't know what he means. But just six days later, Jesus takes his inner circle. He takes Peter, James, and John on top of a high mountain. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white 
as the light. Peter, James, and John encounter Jesus, not just in his humanity, but this time in his true divine nature. Jesus shining like the sun in the same glory that led Israel into the wilderness, the same glory that descended upon Moses at Sinai, the same glory that filled the tabernacle and the temple, they now experience in the presence of Jesus. Can you imagine? Frederick Buechner says, it is a str- it's as strange a scene as there is in the Gospels. Even without the voice from the cloud to explain it, they had no doubt what they were witnessing. It was Jesus of Nazareth, the man they'd tramped many a dusty mile with, whose mothers and brothers they knew, the one they'd seen as hungry, tired, footsore as the rest of them. But it was also the Messiah, the Christ in his glory. It was the holiness of the man shining through his humanness, his face so afire with it they were almost blinded. They catch a glimpse of Jesus' divinity. And not to make a situation weirder, out pops Elijah and Moses, right? And oh, sweet Peter again misunderstands what's happening because he just says, hey, Jesus, now that Elijah and Moses are here, why don't we set up a tent and we can worship all three of you? But he's got that wrong as well because Moses and Elijah aren't pumping up to say, hey, we are all equal and Jesus is just one of us. They're on the mountain because Moses would have represented the law. Elijah would have represented the prophets. And now Jesus is standing in between them both saying he is the fulfillment of the law and prophecies as, pro- law and prophecy as promised by the scriptures. And if we have any idea or any doubt that that's what's happening, we find out that God's voice breaks through in this moment. A bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And just like at his baptism, God the Father affirms that Jesus is his son, and he's pleased with him. And on the top of this mountain, Peter, James, and John experience the presence of Jesus as the truly radiant divine son of God. And being overwhelmed by Jesus' holiness, beholding his beauty, results in a spontaneous act of worship as they fall on their faces. And this is the right response we have to encountering Jesus, falling down in worship before our holy God, being in awe in his presence. See, this is the climax of their experience with Jesus on earth. They've been walking around with him, seeing him perform miracles, but now He shows them his glory, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the same belief that Peter has declared that Jesus is the Messiah and the Christ he is now encountering and experiencing in Jesus' presence. He is seeing the human Jesus as the Christ. It's a foretaste of glory. It's what heaven's going to be like. And so following Jesus is not merely an ascent to belief or it's not merely just confessing truth, and then it's not merely just following, with, following him daily, it is also encountering him. There is an experiential, emotional reality to following Jesus. We are meant to be able to sit in his presence, to behold his glory, to see his radiance, to be in awe of his holiness, and to respond in worship. Friend, Jesus is glorious, 
And as followers of Jesus, we are invited to encounter him and experience his glory. Just like on that mountain, he wants to reveal to us that he is who he says he is. And I think this can be tricky for some of us, depending on the type of church you grew up in or your personality. Some of you are like, experiencing Jesus, being on a mountain, that's amazing. I want to worship all day long. And some of you are like, we do what now? And so just because you may not have a extroverted emotional reaction or might be someone who really enjoys expressive worship does not mean that encountering Jesus isn't part of a rich life of following him. You just may need to figure out what it looks like for you to encounter Jesus. Because depending on your personality, you may experience Jesus differently. And maybe this is sitting in solitude and silence, being aware of his presence in that kind of moment. Maybe it's recognizing and responding to God's holiness and worship and singing. Maybe it's allowing yourself to really encounter and experience Jesus through your emotions by beholding his beauty and his presence. And the truth is, this part of following Jesus, the encountering, just like that mountaintop experience, are not meant to be forever. Because sitting in Jesus' presence are moments while we're here on earth that are a foretaste of what it will be like when we are eternally in his presence. And so just like we don't get to experience this all the time, Peter, James, and John also have to walk back down that mountain And so Jesus walks up to them, graciously touches them while they're on the ground, eases their fear, and the four of them begin to walk back down having a conversation. And in this moment, Jesus tells them to do something that he has said before after miracles and said, don't tell anyone what just happened here until after I've, this is the Son of Man raises from the dead, until after I've resurrected Let's keep this special moment between us. And the final scene I find incredibly encouraging because as they continue to walk down the mountain after having this incredible encounter, we see that Peter, James, and John still don't fully grasp and understand what Jesus is all about. That they have questions. This particular discourse has to do with Elijah and prophecy and what does... Isn't Elijah going to come? And then they, they have this kind of conversation, and Jesus tells them some things. They're like, oh, you mean John the Baptist. After even having this encounter, they have questions, and they talk with Jesus about the questions. And the reason I find this so encouraging is it's saying that we don't have to have all of the answers and have every element of what we think and feel and believe figured out before we encounter Jesus. That he actually is okay with us being in process in our discipleship, and that the more I follow him and the more I encounter him and the more I bring my questions to him, the more he reveals himself to me and the more I understand. We've seen Peter completely miss so much of this stuff and yet at the same time continue to follow Jesus and believe he is who he says he is. So if you're here tonight and you're someone who is filled with questions, or you're someone who has that pull that says, no, I need to figure things out before I fully encounter Jesus. Recognize that in this moment, on the top of that mountain, they were not prevented from encountering Jesus just because they had questions or just because they hadn't figured it out right. 
They brought those questions to Jesus, and he showed them who he was. Have you decided to follow Jesus? That's our question tonight. That following Jesus means confessing him, following Jesus means daily walking with him, and following Jesus means encountering him. And our lives here on the Lower North Shore are not going to look like what we saw here. You probably will not carry a literal cross or see someone crucified. You will probably not be asked to martyr for your faith. But you are still asked to answer that question of who do you say Jesus is? And so as we close tonight, we're going to take a moment of reflection why don't you just take a moment of silence. If you'd close your eyes. We're just going to sit in silence for a minute, and I, I want you to think, where are you in this following of Jesus? Some of you may not be following Jesus at all. You're still at that point of wondering if this is what you believe. Can you confess he is who he says he is? So in your, tonight, in your heart, I'd love for you to just be thinking about what that looks like to be at a point where you could confess Christ. Some of you need to figure out what that next step of obedience is for you. Are there any things in your life, any places that Jesus is leading, any ideas, any conviction that came about you tonight that you were trying to think, what is my next step of obedience? Is my following seeping into every area of my life, and am I denying myself, carrying my cross, and daily step-by-step -step following Jesus? And some of you may just need to sit and encounter Jesus for a minute. To just sit in his presence and remember his holiness and his glory and his radiance. So we're going to sit in silence for about a minute as you pray and reflect on how you are following Jesus tonight. Lord Jesus, thank you. We praise you, we adore you, we love you. We thank you that you are our risen, reigning King. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you invite us to, to follow where you lead. Give us these humble, obedient hearts that will walk in your ways. And Lord, please give us those moments where we experience your, your divine presence. Lord, we crave more and more of those moments. Please give us a space, the time to sit, to sit with you and open our eyes again and again and again as we seek to follow you all our days. In Jesus' name.